Hey, welcome to Steve McGrath's Basecraft. So yeah, it's episode 20 of the podcast. Absolutely amazing that we've got this far, 20 episodes in. Um, I have a, a very bad habit of getting distracted easily by things and moving on to a new project without even giving the one I'm working on a fair chance. So I'm really happy that we've gotten this far. And yeah, I'm going to keep going with it. And um, thanks a lot for all your messages of support, buying the merch and all that. And on that, I'm actually sold out of the first t-shirt, the, ba- the first run of the Basecraft schematic t-shirt. So I'm opening up again. I'm going to put the pre-orders up today and do another batch of them. So um, order it now because I'll have all the sizes on the site. But once I have them ordered, I'll only have a few sizes available. So link is in the bio. And um, yeah, it's been a really cool week. Um, obviously, you know from the name of, the, of this episode, we have Rich Brown on, and it so happened that he's, he was doing a lecture in the Cork School of Music, a masterclass in bass, um, last week, and Noel Barrett, who is a bass lecturer in the college, was so kind to send me a message and say, hey, do you want to come on and sit in on the masterclass with Rich? And um, I did, and it was awesome. It was like, I think it was like two, three, three hours, and um, it was amazing just hearing him talk, and um You'll hear a lot of the stuff that he did, talked about in the Mars class in today's podcast, but not everything. So you jump over to Rich's um, YouTube channel to get even more lessons and stuff. I've been working on some of his material my ste- myself. I've, I've been doing these kind of um, permutations, which he's re- he really likes. Now, he goes into some detail with this, like doing all different ways of doing it. So this is based, this is just a three-note version I'm playing but you can spend years on this, so check out his channel to do that. So it sounds something like this. Um, yeah, so me and Rich, uh, I was hard to know what category to put him in. Uh, like, where do I have subcategories for all these podcasts, like educators and content creators and solo bass? Because he does all these things. He wears all the hats. So um, we kind of covered everything in this. It was real fun chat and um, hope you enjoy it. Of course, check Rich out at all the links. They're also in the bio. He's got a band camp where he has his band releases, his solo releases. He has his YouTube channel where he's putting up educational material all the time. And um, yeah, catch you in a minute and hope you enjoy the episode. One, two, one, two. Yes, I see level. And I'm coming through okay. You can hear me? Absolutely. All right. What's going on with you, man? Uh, it's been uh, it's been crazy. Like, there's been so much going on. Uh, I started this YouTube channel, or I changed my YouTube channel over to, like, a base education sort of thing. And then from there, it's just been all these amazing offers and things coming in and a lot of things just sort of keeping me, like, super busy. Really, that's cool. That that uh, you did. You didn't have a channel before the last few months, did you? Or it was kind of active, but you weren't putting up too much stuff on it. Yeah, I wasn't putting anything up. It, it had been like a couple of years since I I done anything, and then COVID hit, and then I thought, well, I gotta do something. So I just started, you know, putting lessons up on on YouTube to keep myself busy and. And it's been great. The response has been amazing. And the channel has grown so much over the last like two months. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been a, an absolute blessing. And then from that, like I got an offer from, from the, the fine folks at No Trouble to contribute to the, to their online uh, magazine. 
every couple of weeks. And uh, I'm just getting ready to uh, take over the advanced lesson column for Bass Player Magazine. So Cool. That's that. And this is all kind of coming from your YouTube channel. It's just mind I have to blowing. say, I've really enjoyed the channel. I've been um, going through it the last few weeks and I've been doing some of the lessons and I love how long they are. I don't... It's funny, when I put up my own stuff, it is quite chopped up and uh, succinct, I suppose. But I like the long format thing. But I think that only someone who's been teaching for so many years can do the long format thing. And because you've got that muscle exercise so well that you can just do that. I've been teaching sort of one-on-one lessons like at college and, you know, recently in the last few years online. Uh, But for so many years. and And I... I feel like I've gained this ability to establish a rapport with a student like pretty quickly. Um, so now I just put that in front of a camera and I've done that as well uh, with Scott's bass lessons where you have to sort of speak into a camera and, and pretend it's somebody mm. that you really want to, that somebody's sitting right across from you that you really want to connect with. So uh that's what's happening in the channel now true but on spl um the courses are, are they're they're a lot shorter like you wouldn't get away with spending maybe 20 minutes on one exercise which is cool on youtube you can do that because i suppose the the way spl is they couldn't have like the courses being three hours long and each video exactly. being 20 or 30 minutes yeah 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 but it's good i mean i i felt like i wanted to put together lessons that would uh, be great for beginners, but at the same time pose a challenge to more advanced level students or just musicians who wanted to get into some different ideas. Uh, it's difficult finding that sort of hybrid of where everyone is being um, addressed at the same time. But uh, um, but so far the response has been great. And yeah, I think I have some controversial opinions myself when it comes to the education at the moment. It's, it's almost a lot of people when they're going online, they think you have to learn jazz to get to the next level. But there's yeah. still so much there without touching jazz. Like you do it. You did a pentatonic lesson and like that. Everyone should learn that no matter what style you're in. So there, there is still loads of things you can do and you don't have to go near walking bass or jazz sheets or anything. I could not agree more. And, you know, I teach at Humber College here in Toronto. Um, And it's mainly, you know, the program is mainly a jazz program, but the students aren't really jazz musicians. Mm. So, you know, over the course of the year, they'll study like all the sort of jazz theory and things like that. I'm not as well versed in that because I didn't come up in that tradition. Um, So usually when students study with me, they get a bit more of a variety of different kinds of music and things like that, as much as I love jazz. Um, But it's great to see like when the end of the year comes around and students start to present their own music and do their own performances, that a lot of it, you know, has nothing to do with jazz. You see a lot of like neo soul and funk and even some metal bands like Mm. traditional country music. I mean, this is what the students are really sort of doing to express themselves. Uh, and a lot of times it's the furthest thing from jazz. Definitely. And, um, so are are you still with SBL? Are you still doing lessons with them? Are you kind of on your own now? Uh, I think that's kind of up in the air. That's sort of up to Scott. Like every once in a while, he'll send me a little message and ask me if I'd be into 
mm. uh, doing something for the site. Uh, we've talked about some stuff for the future, but he's got so much going on. I know. I'm a lifetime member. I, I don't know. I got lucky. I, I don't think they'll be doing the offer again. It was years <laughs> ago. It was so cheap. Like, and uh, so I'm all, I, get, I dip in every now and then. They have a new thing going on with mentors, but I always yeah. enjoyed your seminars when you used do them on it like they, they, oh, were, they, that, that was a fun feature because they were so long yeah yeah thank you uh those are always fun i mean you know i i suppose i am an official sort of faculty member at scott space lessons um but again he's got so much going on i just sort of wait for the phone to ring and and see if he's got something for me uh, and the the column you're doing with base pair magazine is that for the print magazine that you're doing at it is yeah Oh, man, I'm really excited about that. I mean, I, I remember being like 18 years old working at a music store and, you know, picking up Bass Player Magazine every month just to check it out. And, yeah, I have a stack just, of them here. Like, I, I can't throw them away, even though I don't read them anymore. Yeah. So it's, they're just, they have something about them. Yeah, it's so surreal to me to have this opportunity. So, uh, in fact, I just sent in my first, uh, my first sort of, uh, article last night and uh i'm waiting to hear the thoughts of the the old gm to see what he thinks about it like, <laughs> and are they giving you um a brief as in we want advanced stuff or are you just taking whatever you think you should give to them yeah i mean but that's the only thing that they've said they want they want these to be advanced lessons and they've left the rest up to me so i kind of have carte blanche within those sort of parameters which is great because, you know, I get to talk about what I want. And I, I really feel like, you know, the idea that I was talking about before, of really making a connection with a student. I feel like I want that to come across in, uh, in the articles as well. Even though it's print, you know, I, I want people to feel um, motivated by these lessons. So hopefully there'll be a lot of readers and and they'll be somehow better bass players or more inspired or, you know. I'm sure they will. Um, did it take you long to get the teacher mindset going? Like I'm, I have a lot more bass students at the moment. And I think I, I've, I taught acoustic guitar for years, like, but I'm mainly teaching bass now. I find bass a much harder instrument to teach because to explain yeah. what I've been doing for years, did it take you long to, and you have all these really cool exercises and I'm only starting to build up my own exercises. Did you always have the exercises kind of for your own personal routine? Or is that just something that started happening as you had students? I, yeah, I always had these exercises because I didn't, um, I didn't go to school for music. I mean, I didn't go to college, right? I, I, I graduated high school and I was like, I'm done with school. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Do you have to pay for college in Canada, actually? Or is it, is it free? Uh, well, you get student loans, so you have okay. to pay those back, but, uh, not free then, <laughs> not free. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, for me, the, the, because I taught myself to play the instrument, I, I learned all these different exercises from studying different videos, like the, you know, the old Jaco Pastorius VHS. I was actually watching that. Remember you said you wouldn't be on for a minute. I said I was gone down a YouTube hole. Yeah. I was watching the Jacobi video yeah. for the first time in years. Yeah, that was, you know, I got that when I was maybe 18 or 19. Mm. And 
I did all the exercises like daily, but then through those exercises, I started to ask myself questions like what would happen if I tried this instead of this? And maybe if I move this around to some different things. And when I started teaching, uh, it was very uncomfortable for me because I didn't feel like all the stuff that I had taught myself was uh, applicable for other students who really wanted to learn, you know, different things. But that, you know, I was so wrong about that. Like Mm. now I realize that this, you know, this is the stuff that taught me how to play. So why not pass that on to other people? Um, so for years and years, I, I had to get over this, this real feeling of imposter syndrome where I just, I felt like I don't know what to teach people, but it's, it's been there this whole time. And I just didn't think it was valuable mm. enough to someone else. But now it's I realize a, it is. It's a different skill. Like, um, uh, watching the Jacko, I've read his, the book, you know, and, um, he says himself, he wasn't a teacher, like, but he, and people went to him and they just hung out and it was a bit of fun and they got to see him being amazing but the funny thing about watching the modern electric dvd is he, he's just showing what he does and obviously someone watched it back and made exercises out of everything he did like there was no yeah. plan for the day of the recording yeah he's like he does this amazing run and it says exercise 10 and he does loads <laughs> of random stuff and then it just says that they're exercises and somehow yeah out of some amazing it, it became a, it really is a good learning dvd but jacko oh, didn't man. arrive to that session like okay here are all the exercises i'm gonna yeah. teach that's amazing huh like yeah just just and it's kind of cool the way they set that up yeah uh because man like i learned so much from that that video and i you know i remember walking into a, a music store with, with a few friends of mine and, and i saw that sitting on the shelf like on VHS, like an old mm. video cassette. And uh, man, I had to have it. And as soon as I put it on, you know, I just picked up the bass and I was like, oh, I can understand what's going on here. You know, especially for me, being somebody who didn't go to school for music or didn't really learn to read or learn theory, uh, all that information was was easy for me to just like connect to. And it it, it helped me in the most invaluable ways it's amazing well before like the internet it was amazing to see how he moved his hand so fast where the harmonics came from when you're just listening on rate on the cd you're thinking he was down low and then he was up high like maybe this is double tracked i don't know how does anyone play the bass that fast so (laughs) get to see him do it like i used to uh i used to play with this band dap theory really great band yeah i was listening to them as well in preparation for this and Cool. you're slapping the bass as like i didn't know you yeah. did slap you. <laughs> it's funny i haven't done much of that since uh lord knows why but uh you know we had this residency in los angeles we played i mean i don't know if any clubs do this anymore but this was around 2002 2003 we played one club in hollywood for a month literally five nights a week for four weeks and all these heavy musicians just started showing up like regularly. And one of the guys who would show up uh, a lot was Bobby Columbia, who produced that yeah, Jocko the, record. the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he had a million stories about you know how they'd be sitting in the studio. He told me this one story about how they were sitting in the studio one time listening to uh, the playback of Donna Lee, just the two of them. Mm. 
Uh, and the song finished and you know, the room went silent and Jocko turned to Bobby and he said, Bobby, you hear that? And Bobby was like, no, what? Jocko said, that's the sound of bass cases all over the world closing for the last time. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. No, they're so great. Actually, when I bought the book, it came with a CD of interviews with Jacko's dad and a few other people and wow. some um, spoken word stuff from Jacko just talking about random stuff. Oh, man, I didn't uh, know that. Maybe someone has it. On, it's probably put online at this stage, but that was cool. Companion with the with the with the book, like to get this CD because ja Jacko's dad, I think he was like a bit Irish. He had a quarter Irish or something, but he was a musician himself. Like he was singing stuff. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, I read the book, but I, I didn't get the CD edition of it. Mine so. was one of the, the newer editions because oh, yeah, gotcha. I was late get coming to the Jacko. I, I wasn't into jazz growing up. I was into like Primus and Metallica and oh, that cool. kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get into Jocko. It's funny. I didn't get into Jocko until like the day he died. Really? I, yeah, I turned the radio on and um, this jazz program came on. And the host said, we're going to dedicate the next two hours to the music of Jaco Pistorius, the greatest bass player in the world. And I had been playing bass for maybe a few months. So I thought, who's Jaco Pistorius? Maybe I'll check this out. And the first tune they played was Continuum. And my mind was blown. <laughs> I was like, what? What is he doing? What is that? How is he getting that sound? Yeah, actually, it's funny. At the moment, kind of, with the bass sidekeist or whatever's going on with the bass world, you don't as much hear people sounding like Jacko. It's almost like everyone has decided Jacko is, there's only one Jacko. And like a lot of, a lot of the people who are coming up, the big names, are, they're not sounding as like Jacko as, you know, back when he was around, there was a lot of people trying to copy what he does. Like, you know, I, yeah, I feel like things changed. Um, I feel like things changed when Matt Garrison started to get a little more recognized because there was a shift in the way that bass players sounded because, you know, when Matt came out, like he was using a lot of like melodic harmonic minor scale, that kind of harmony. Uh, and then Hadrian Faroe, he started to pick that up as well. And then everyone wanted to sound like Hadrian. And the mm. whole bass world just shifted from, from Jocko to Matt to Hadrian, who really sounds a lot like Matt to me. Mm. Um, but that's, that's kind of where it's been going. And now you're hearing a lot more uh, straight up just pentatonic patterns. Yeah, Joe Dart, players. for example, he's making a career yeah. with the pentatonic and he's yeah. killing it at it. Like. Yeah, Joe Dart and Mono Neon and... Oh yeah, like, he's brilliant. He he has yeah, some great man. mono neon kind of has more kind of bebop vocabulary as well, thrown in yeah. with the pentatonic stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing just to, to to see the way that the bass world is always changing and evolving. But I think you're unusual that you you're a solo bass player, but you're also you play in a band. So I know all the guys who do the solo bassing, like Steve Lawson and them. Oh, yeah. they're able to fill the normal bass player role. But they don't too often. They're, they do their solo basing, but you kind of do both, don't you? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I love the idea. I love the ensemble. I love the idea of getting together with a group of sort of like-minded musicians and, and really trying to find that 
common space in music where everyone is just communicating on the same level and and having you know the best time doing it i think you know people really respond to that um and then the solo bass thing sort of came later when uh when i just wanted to explore more of the instrument like the main instrument that i play is a six string electric bass that was made by my friend kenneth lawrence and um you know when i got this thing i just thought oh there's there's so much here you know beyond the range of the instrument there's so much here sonically um and i can get all these different timbres and also you know i listen to a lot of different styles and a lot of different instru instruments so i wanted to see if i could emulate those things that i was hearing and in doing so uh i guess i sort of gained the confidence that made me feel like i had something to say as a solo artist yeah um so it's been you know it's been a great journey i'm trying to i mean i don't know if i should say this out loud yet but uh but, okay um, i can edit it now <laughs> <laughs> But I, I'm planning to record, you know, since we're all in lockdown, I'm planning to record another solo bass album over the mm. next couple of months. Well, there's a good, that's the thing, isn't it? Where yeah, when you say something, you make it real and it'll happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. That's a good <laughs> but, reminder. But I was, I can't pronounce the name, uh, uh, the name of your song, Lua, and another one, Enjuin. How do you say that? Oh, Nguyen. Yeah. Nguyen. Yeah. Really nice stuff. Like it's. Thank it's you. cool but it, it, you don't use a lot of fe pedals though do you like the other some of the other solo jazz guys who have a huge pedal board you yeah. you're mainly a looper and a nice you get a good solo sound going and you go for it yeah i'm i i kind of i like both worlds i feel like if i present something that's like full of effects and all kinds of uh processing i have to do something that is the complete opposite where you just hear the bass so I kind of go back and forth. The looping thing is is also new to me. It's uh, like a lot of the stuff that I played on uh, my solo album uh, was played in real time. I didn't loop anything. I just sort of went in and played a track and then went back and played another track mm. uh, and did is it that Is that way. the album, A Bang? Is that your solo album? The solo album, the solo bass album is called Between Heaviness and Here. Okay. And the A Bang album is with my band a bang um so yeah it's it's just it's cool to to be able to wear these different hats and like want to do a solo thing here or want to uh you know experiment with some composition in an ensemble setting and mm. it's great it must have been weird when you started doing that first for audiences as a bass player to just oh man you know you're you're it's so you're not you're all you're it's just you and you've no band you're you're pretty yeah it's almost like singing you're yeah. naked it's you've nothing to back to back you up like just yourself well it's you know the funny thing is is like in both instances as far as my band and the solo thing they they both happened by accident in the exact same way where with my band it was in 2006 that was our first gig uh, and there was a jazz festival going on here in, in Toronto. And um, the promoter of the jazz festival just offered me a night and said, you know, if you're interested in doing something, I could, I could set up a gig for you here as part of the festival. And I said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and we booked the night. Thing was, 
I didn't have any music and I didn't have a band. So I had to put that together. That was like the incentive that made me sort of make it happen. And then the exact same thing happened. I didn't really have any plans to do solo performances. And then a friend of mine was opening a yoga school and uh, she came to me and said, you know, uh, we're doing this big party. It's a grand opening. I wonder if you can just come in and, and play solo for the <laughs> That's night. Class. Very open-minded uh, person. Like, yeah. I want solo bass. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, I'll do it. And I didn't have tunes. And I, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do. Funny thing is, um, those videos, like where you saw Lua, and there are a couple of more. There are a couple more. Um, but all those videos are from that very performance. That was oh, my cool. first gig as a solo bass player. And had you all those compositions in the bag from years of just noodling at home, kind of, or did you get them ready for yeah, the night? kind of. St- yeah. Sound check riffs, kind of. <laughs> yes, exactly. Where I just come up with like some little idea, like during a rehearsal or a sound check or something, and I would just think, oh, maybe I should do something with this. Um, so I did, and and they turned into these little songs, and and then after a while, I thought, well, maybe it'd be a good idea to record this. So I went to a friend of mine, and we recorded the album. Uh, at their sort of basement studio and that was it like the album came out um on a small record label here which uh has since gone under but uh but yeah i mean i'm i'm proud of that album i, I guess I, I could say i'm fortunate because i'm proud of the albums that i've put out so far mm. would you for the next album would you consider just recording it at home like uh, into your own interface and just doing everything yourself which yeah. you can totally do like as a bass player. Yeah, you can. Uh, but it's it's new territory for me. I don't know a lot about mixing and mastering and that whole thing. Mm. So, you know, I know I can record and I, I, you know, I have a system and I have everything set up to, to do the actual playing and the sort of documenting. But then after that, it's a whole new world for me that I have to sort of figure out. I have to buy a new mic stand. This thing is driving me crazy. It's like, <laughs> it's just falling the whole time. Uh, uh, yeah, I have mine sitting over there. It has the same problem. I need to do what you do. Get the lapel mic and be pro- be professional. <laughs> I got this for the channel, for the YouTube thing. Brilliant. Uh, what's um, Toronto, Toronto like as a music? I watched that TV show, um, Kim's Convenience. So you get, to oh, see a lo- you get to see a lot of the city. It looks like a real... Um, bohemian city from you know the b-roll they play in the show yeah i love all that b-roll because it's like every time i every time they go to those clips i'm like oh man i know where that is oh that's actually what i said to my girlfriend rebecca i said i bet people from toronto know where all those places are oh absolutely i mean i even know where the store is which is great what do they just put up the sign for the show kim's convenience or they leave it as kim convenience all year I kind of wonder if that's always been there. Like I see that sign and I just think, man, I've seen that sign so many times, but maybe (laughs) it's just in my head. That's such a great show. Um, But yeah, I mean, what you see in that show is, is pretty accurate to what this city is like. And uh, I mean, it's a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous place. It's my favorite city in the world. I can't even imagine calling anywhere else home, Mm. you know, and I've been asked many times, um, to move to Los Angeles or New York and as tempting as it is and, and as great it would be, as great as it would be for my career, I, you know, I just can't see myself living 
well, first of all, I can't see myself living living in America again. Like that's yeah. not going to happen. You spent some when you were doing that residency. You were you living in uh, San Francisco at the time? Yeah, we were living in Los Angeles, oh, and, LA, yeah. um, and uh, it's like you leave Earth for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange I mean, town i've never been there but some of my friends have been there i asked them what it was like and they just they couldn't really put it into words they just thought it was a strange city <laughs> it's a it's a strange city and i mean i don't want to sound like i hated it but i yeah, i just can't see myself living there mm. um toronto is such a beautiful place it's such an amazingly multicultural community and you know everyone sort of lives with everyone you know I always say about Toronto, it's like the worst place in the world to be a racist. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) Um, But the, you know, the art scene is like thriving. Everyone knows each other. Everyone respects each other. And and there are so many different uh, communities. There's like a great hip hop scene. Of course, there's an amazing jazz scene. There's a, there's an indie rock scene. That's amazing. Um, and the food here is incredible. Like mm. I, I just love living here. And there are great venues. There's not a lot of venues, but there, there are really great venues here that support live music. For a gigging a, musician, like you, you'd be busy every weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah. It's not hard to keep yourself busy uh, living here. Yeah, and you're, you're teaching full time as well. Like so, you're when the gigs do come back, you'll be with all this new stuff coming in. You're going to be pretty busy. Yeah, it's going to be pretty insane. I feel like uh, I feel like my life is so busy now without going out and playing gigs. I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen when, you know, when we can finally get out there again. Yeah, I but, kind of feel the same. I have a lot of teaching stuff at the moment and no yeah. gigs. So I'm thinking, what's go- when I have the gigs, something's going to have to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of wondering, like, what am I going to do? Yeah, I don't know how I keep up the YouTube channel. I, I, those videos take a lot of time like so i don't know it's hard to keep them up it'd be hard when things go back to that's what i'm looking at what can i can i do that's sustainable for when the world is back to normal and yeah yeah. there's like distractions like your friends going to the pub and gigs and everything (laughs) totally does it so you said it takes you a long time to put a video together like yeah i'm quite slow at them like i'd say a day two days work maybe but like you're, you're you seem to have your style down where you just you you film straight through and uh, you do an odd cut, but you just cut it. No problem. And you're straight. Yeah. Back well, I, I kind of learned that from Scott. I like the way he sort of cuts from one thing to the other. Jump cuts. Like, is that what the, yeah, the pros call it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He does all those little jump cuts. I thought maybe I should do more of that instead of like doing things like what I just did. Hmm. Um, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> so and he plans to release crazy. some like Janik Guizala has, you know, he brings out his books, but usually they're just PDFs that you buy that'd be a really good thing for you to get into, I think. Yeah, I've thought about it. And I've actually had people offer uh, to put together sort of PDFs and and notate some of the videos that I've done. Um, so that's kind of on the, the, the it's, it's in the back of my mind right now. Um, but it's definitely, a, it's a possibility that I, that I might look into in the future. I think it's just kind of people at the moment, they like to support someone. Like I bought Rick Beato's Beato book there a few weeks ago. Yeah. I haven't even opened it yet, but I was like, you know, I've been watching his channel for years. I give yeah, him some totally. support. <laughs> yeah, I also feel like, you know, on the other hand, I, I feel like, you know, I learned this instrument uh, by ear. Um, 
and I thought about there's there are times when I think about like releasing PDFs to go along with the individual videos, and then I just think, well, maybe it's more beneficial to some people if they listen and learn and discover how these patterns form on the neck for themselves without having to look at a piece of paper and, mm. and understand it that way. Um, because for me, not being the best reader, I had to really use my ears and my sort of muscle memory. And I find that I'm able to memorize music a little faster. Um, and it's helped me in, in incredible ways, like not having, not having the music in front of me. So I, I kind of hesitate when it comes to that idea of releasing PDFs with the videos because I, I want people to sort of learn the way that I did so that they can get the same sort of benefits. Yeah, I don't think you, they'd get as much from them. Like you're, you're kind of hoping that your people watching it will have the self-discipline that maybe you had. So you're hoping that they won't just get the PDF, fluff through the exercise. I can do that now. Move on which is what yeah, generally man. people do. Like, You're so right. It's so true. But I feel like when people sit down and really figure it out, they're, you know, they're putting it into their subconscious and then it's mm. just there. Even if you just look at yourself, like when you were, well, me anyways, when I was a teenager playing these lines that I thought I could play, but I was just playing them really badly. <laughs> I needed, <laughs> I should have put more time in, you know, I thought I was playing these lines and I was killing it. But in hindsight, I don't think I was like, I was just right. learning loads of stuff from tabs and fly. Oh yeah, I can play so many songs. I'm, but I wasn't learning the fundamentals and just get really getting the songs under my hands. Like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I feel like that way you also, you, you do the same thing that I did when I was like learning this instrument and you ask yourself questions. You, 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 you get a particular idea under your fingers and you go, Oh man, that's cool. What if I tried this? And it's those questions that lead you to, you know, finding your own voice on the instrument, because mm. those questions are your questions. Those are your individual thoughts that no one else is going to have. So when you do that, that's when you're really building your own vocabulary, which is the exciting thing that I want for people who watch uh, the videos on my channel. And did you come from a musical family? What were your kind of base beginnings? Like what was it? Uh, that instrument behind you with the two strings that wasn't your first instrument was it? <laughs> <laughs> not at all this instrument uh this is a, a gimbri from north africa uh and i'm still learning it it's such a gorgeous instrument fretless uh two-string instrument is it yeah it's actually three strings but uh, the bridge is broken on it so the okay. strings are just kind of like flopping all over the place um yeah, my my dad was not a musician. My my parents weren't musicians. My mom uh sang in church. That was about it. <clears throat> uh but my dad was like a a real sort of record collector. So he would have music on in the house like all the time. And I grew up with like, you know, old reggae from the 60s and 70s and lots of funk and R&B. And I was really into it. Like I just love that music. Um, and it led me to sort of, you know, just want to learn how to play it and, and what made up these ideas and how do they come up with all this stuff. Mm. And I guess I was maybe 13 when I decided that this is really what I wanted to do. Um, so, you know, I got a, a, an old 
cheap bass with like really ridiculously high action that you could barely play and struggled on that, like trying to learn, you know, police songs and uh, trying to learn like level 42 and stuff like those that. police songs are very hard though. Like I've had a few students they saying they want to learn the song and I was like, okay, it only has three notes in it, but I can barely play this song. They get the rhythm right, you know, to get it's true. The, the rhythms in the field that he does is so hard to nail. It's, and I can look at my playing objectively now. And I was just, I was just saying, this is hard. Like this is only three notes, but it's really hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard to get those syncopations and really understand what's going on with the groove. Um, but I don't know, man, I feel like that's the best way to learn music is just to sit down and, you know, when I, I, I tell people all the time, like there was a period in my life, like right around that time when I was sort of learning the instrument, where I would literally practice for like 12 hours a day. Because what did your parents think? Were they like, he's, he's losing it. He's getting, they were, he's playing too much. <laughs> they were really into it. They were really supportive. Um, I mean, it wasn't until like I decided I really wanted to be a professional musician that my dad kind of went, okay, hold on now. Now you're talking crazy. <laughs> but uh, my mom was always down she was always like super supportive it took me a while to get for my parents to get to that stage I have one funny abiding memory uh, I grew up on a farm and I wanted to get some time in in the shed so I went down to we had an old farmhouse that my granddad used to live in but no one was had lived in it for years so I went in there to do some practice and I, I just started doing my practice and my father comes in he's like come on if you dose some sheep or some cattle and I was like, oh, I just can't get any peace. And he's like, I need, I was telling him I'm practicing. This is my job. I'm a musician. Yeah. He's like, whatever. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but now they, he understands. He he doesn't understand. He just keeps saying, why are you practicing all the time? You, you, you're, you're a professional now. You get paid for this. I'm like, but that's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the funny thing. It's like you, they think you just could stop practicing once you get yeah. to a certain level. Well, but that, they were, that. That's great that they were so encouraging. But My they, dad, like, yeah. Yeah, my dad, not so much. But it, he came around. Uh, one time he was, like, hanging out with some friends and uh, at a bar or something like that. And... Um, I guess a local television station had come out and covered a gig that I was playing uh, and put it on the news. So my dad was at this bar with a bunch of friends of his and, you know, the TV was on in the background. And then one of his friends sort of looked up at the television, turned to my dad and was like, hey, isn't that your son <laughs> on TV? And my dad was like, yeah, I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> That's cool though to see uh, that. It, so it's not much different in uh, Toronto. If you're on the telly, you've made it. Like you made it. it. <laughs> that's it. He's going to be okay. It's it, yeah. It's unfortunate in life the way it goes. That isn't it? Like you, you have to be so successful for people to accept you following your vocation. But I don't know. You, you should. Everyone should at least try and fail at their vocation and then fall yeah. back on something else. Like that. If I have, if I had kids, that's what I'd say. Look, fail at what you you like and. You can always yeah, do yeah. something you hate. <laughs> but then, you know, you, you kind of have to redefine what success is because, mm. you know, I mean, I'm, I am by no means a household name. I'm not like, you know, on the cover of magazines or anything that I'm not winning polls or anything. But, you know, this is what I do for a living and the fridge is full and the lights are still on. So to me, that's, that's a success. 
that is though it's that that's all sure what else what more do you want you get you get to play the bass for live for your living yeah you get to live in toronto (laughs) i you know it's the greatest job in the world it really is Uh, and if you love it i'm sure you you love practicing and the process of getting better and all that so that's what that's the important thing like yeah i feel like that's something that i really want to get across to not just my students, but to everyone. Like you really have to enjoy the process. You have to love the sound of the instrument that you're playing and really be into the, the you know, every aspect of it. Really be into failing. Really mm. be into sounding like garbage for a little while because it's kind of exciting to know that this thing that is kicking your butt right now is going to sound amazing if you put the work in. Like yeah. to me, that's super exciting. Yeah, I did. I spent the whole this year playing with the pick, pick playing. Yeah, and I'm really happy where I'm getting with it. I'm putting up videos like, and I'm doing this real nice palm mute and stuff, and which I couldn't do last year. So it's cool to get a little bit of progress like that. You know, it's an amazing feeling, right? Like, I love it. it. Is. Uh, and you're do you find it hard to juggle? Like you have what you're Rick Brown, the solo artist. You have what's your other about a bang and you have this other one rick rick oh the al- rinse, the al- <laughs> rinse, the, rinse the algorithm <laughs> rinse the algorithm yeah so is that your three projects i suppose apart from your educational stuff yeah um but you don't yeah, even rinse, think about it like that you're just like i'm doing no, this today or i think that's it i think that's how i have to think of it because i if i think of everything at once then it's way too overwhelming for me mm. and i am easily overwhelmed stuff so i have to you know i have to really compartmentalize and and try to think of you know focus on one thing at a time and then um you know once i feel like a particular idea has, has run its course then i have these other avenues that i can explore mm. um so it keeps things interesting it keeps me from being bored uh and it you know it keeps my mind sort of focused on music and and developing as a you know i want to develop as a musician and as a composer and you know as a bass player and as someone who wants to express themselves through the instrument i want to be able to do all of that at a high degree so i Mm. i I keep myself busy with different things Uh, do you find yourself comfortable in that position as the band leader or were you used to more being a sideman before you started leading bands or did you always kind of take the lead like as be i'm like that i I always ended up being the leader in whatever band i was in the guy who booked the gigs and all that stuff yeah (laughs) yeah i i feel like my experience has as a sideman has really helped in my experience as a band leader because um you know you work with so many bands and you work with so many band leaders and you really get a sense of what to do as well as what not to do because Mm. i've worked with some terrible band leaders and learned just as much of what not to do from them as I have from the great band leaders who really, you know, taught me how to really run a band properly. Yeah. It's not, it's not like the sixties or something anymore. You can't be like this jazz band leader, like, you know, giving out to all your band members and finding them when they make a mistake. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. I feel like I, I, you know, as a band leader, I really want to, I really want to have, some empathy towards the people that I'm playing with and really put them or consider them in every aspect of what's going on. Even in the writing process, I really want to allow for the musicians in the band to, um, 
you know, input their own personalities into the music so that they really feel like they're part of it. Well, you did on um, the, uh, the, the track Window Seat, you did something cool. The sax doubles the bass solo. Like it's, you're both playing the same. Oh, line. yeah. Is it the same notes or is there harmonies? Yeah. I think it's the same notes. It's the same notes the first time and then there's a harmony the second time through. That was cool. And that was nice if you had to give the sax player <laughs> the solo with <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, he's one of my favorite players in the world anyway. So it's it just, it, you know, giving him any opportunity to just do his thing is. But it was, a, I, that was a me. moment of you seeing the bigger picture. When I was listening to that, it was in a different sound. It's like, oh, that's, that's catching my ear. Like, cause I'm hearing the sax and the bass for a long time playing. Yeah. Together. Yeah, that's, you know, that's something, maybe it was the Yellow Jackets, but that's something, that's a sound that I kind of enjoyed, just hearing the combination of those two voices together, like an electric bass and a saxophone mm. playing the same lines. I think it was the Yellow Jackets that did a lot of that, and maybe that's where I sort of got that idea. That's, is that, do you draw your inspiration from all kinds of genres when you're writing your own music? Most definitely. Yeah. Like, in fact, that song, Window Seat, that was really inspired. Well, there's a story behind that song. That song is really about gratitude. And um, window seat refers to the window seat of the trains that I used to sort of kind of covet whenever I was on the road in Europe. Because, you know, I'd be on the road and we'd have these travel days, these long travel days. But they were amazing because you'd be on this train and you would look out the window and see like, you know, the Alps or something. Yeah, yeah. And I would just think this is the, the most amazing job in the world. Like, I'm doing this. I'm, you know, seeing the Alps. I'm seeing all this beautiful scenery. And then mm. someone's going to give me money at the end of this. Like, it's insane. <laughs> um, but yeah, at that time... on a train is luxury as well. Like, uh, yeah, it, it, absolutely. You're just not three guys in a stinking van, like, being on a train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we would, you know, it's funny. I mean, not to be like that guy, but we would always travel first class on these trains. And it was, mm. like, just the best. And at that time... Uh, I had like kind of a regular playlist on rotation when I would be, you know, on these travel days. And one of the songs that I listened to over and over again was a, a song called We Live in Brooklyn by Roy Ayers. Um, so the main groove of Window Seat is based on this song, uh, We Live in Brooklyn, because that song takes me back to that, you mm. know, back to that window seat back to where I was just like looking out at all this beautiful stuff throughout Europe. Yeah, you're, it is class touring in Europe, but I do it in a van, so yeah. it's not quite as comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I did do a lot of the train when in, there's a thing called Interrail. You can oh, yeah. only go on it when you're like uh, 21 or 22. I did that when I was 21. It's like a special tr train ticket for people that age in Europe and you get free, well, it's like 100 euros or 200 euros and you can travel all over Europe for four weeks for free wow. on all the trains really so i did that when i was 21 for three weeks and it was crazy it was that's so amazing we got in a lot of trouble there was a lot of shenanigans uh, of course i would expect as much yeah but i'm, I'm still in one piece so that's the main thing <laughs> and you have stories i'm sure yeah probably won't tell them here but i didn't <laughs> <laughs> nice one man but you have a class sense of rhythm and even i was watching the daft theory videos on youtube and i was reading the comments and people were saying, he's putting rhythms within the rhythms. <laughs> <laughs> Could you give us an insight into how you developed your sense of rhythm? Like, because it is, it is true. I was listening to your bass playing and you're doing some really cool, funky stuff. Like, and especially with that band, Dap Theory, I suppose you had the space to do it. 
Yeah. Well, that that was a very sort of unique situation. Well, I shouldn't. Yeah, I guess it was a unique situation in that, uh, you know, a lot of the music that we played in that band was based on a lot of mixed meter and odd time signatures and things like that. Um, and rhythms that I was already kind of familiar with. I mean, I live in Canada, so, you know, Rush was like a big influence and, mm. you know, getting into that music and, and hearing odd times for the first time, uh, it, uh, it fascinated me. So I, I, I sort of dove into that world. Uh, and then it was through DAP theory that, you know, we had this system where a lot of the drum parts were through composed. They were totally written out. Um, so we would learn the drum patterns and it didn't matter what the time signature was because if you had the drum pattern in your head, there was no way that you were going to, you know, deviate or make or get off of the rhythm. Mm. Um, so the drum patterns became the main melodies and that allowed me to really stretch because then you're not counting anymore. That's the thing that people sort of realize um, or people have to realize is that you can't count through that music. I don't want to be counting when I'm trying to play. Yeah, it's not going to be very groovy or natural, is it? If you're just counting yeah. for a whole five, for five or six minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for me, it was a matter of like having this other, essentially another melody, this drum groove. Uh, and then I could do whatever I want against that groove. The other thing is like... Um, everything you do relates to that main melody. So, you know, even if I'm playing something in kind of an odd time, or even if I'm playing something in 4-4, I want to have some sort of rhythmic foundation that allows me to feel the largest space within the groove. So um, once I do that, you know, even if I'm hearing something in 4-4 that... I can count in half time or I can count even slower. Like a full bar can be one beat. All that space in between is sort of up for interpretation. I can subdivide that in any way that I please. So, you know, that comment about putting rhythms within rhythms, that's actually quite true. Like, because, because now I see uh, a larger space. So, you know, if you have a tune that's in four, like this, one, two, three, four, then I'll just hear this, right? Yeah. So all that space happening between the beats can be anything, like mm -hmm. anything, which makes it fun for me because, you know, you can, you can really get into all these different uh, subdivisions and note groupings and so many possibilities as opposed to me going one, two, three, four, one and two and three. And do you think in like uh, conical or co what that's new? This is something I was only getting into recently through teaching, really. Uh, Kodai, did you ever hear of him? K O D L Y. He's like this music educator who studies like Indian rhythms and all the other oh, ones cool. and came up with his own system for oh, teaching, right teaching kids how to count. So it's like ta ta. Tati, that uh, kind of thing. So it's kind of like conical yeah. in that way, like. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. But you I don't, you don't work with that. You're still in the the classic one and a two and a that kind of way of thinking of the beat. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I kind of you kind of have to learn it and forget it because you have <laughs> yeah. to know what it is, right? Yeah. 
um, and then you have to forget about what it is. It has to become part of mm. your your thing. Um, so the one e and the two e and that's always there, but I'm not thinking one e and the two e and. I just realize that those are options for me uh, in the rhythmic space that I have, which sounds kind of vague and a little like. No, it's it's actually funny enough. A few another guest I had on um, Rennie uh, Fluxenhire. I don't know if you watched the Base the World channel. Do you know that channel? Oh, yeah, of course. And he has this really nice beard and he always wears a hat. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I really was digging his plane. So I was like, what, should, what would people get into to be like you? And he, was, he just said he just works on his inner pulse for a few hours, for hours and hours, for years. And that was pretty much his entire shed time was just working on his inner pulse, which I found interesting. Yeah. So, okay, so you weren't transcribing loads of cool licks and all that kind of stuff you were literally just getting your inner pulse strengthened so i think that's interesting for people to hear like because they think you have to be learning all this crazy fancy stuff to get to being a better musician but you kind of have to have the fundamentals first don't you like you definitely do uh having the fundamentals is key and i guess that's the same with anything but uh i feel like you know again once you have that understanding you can go anywhere you can do anything um, and that's always the exciting thing for me, like being able to explore what else can happen once you like have a full understanding of a particular idea. Um, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about like asking questions, because then once you have that, those questions will will come to you where you just want to experiment and go, what if it's mm-hmm. the what ifs, all those what ifs that make us that essentially make us who we are. Right. Yeah, well, that's where you become an interesting musician to listen to because you're exploring new kind of ideas yourself, aren't you? Yeah, and I love the fact that that's never going to stop. I love the no. fact that I'm always going to be a student of music for the rest of my life. Like, uh, Do you think when you're doing like a pentatonic, do you think like, oh, uh, like I don't really think like that. And I know Victor Wooten had this thing. He was like, um, how many keys are there? And he asked and everyone said 12 and he said there's 24 there's a 12 major and a 12 minor keys. But when I'm playing uh, a G, a G, what, what was it going? Oh yeah, a G major, a G minor pentatonic and an A flat major pentatonic. It's the same thing to me. They're just... Absolutely. I don't think of them as minor or major. They're just the same group of notes and I'll just, I'll use them wherever way I want them. Like, Yeah, yeah, totally. Like I feel, I feel, <laughs> I mean, I know that there are 12 keys or 24 keys or whatever, but I, you know, I don't really think in those terms like again i'm always trying to see the largest phrase so uh i you know i usually think of things as just being one sound Mm. and because i've put in all this work to get a a a real deep sort of understanding of the, the fretboard um if i hear something if i hear a chord or hear a note i will you know put my hand down and play one note or press one note of the fingerboard and then all this stuff just starts to sort of light up i know where everything is in relation to what i'm hearing through all the work that i've done previously like working on scales and doing all those sort of uh uh doing all those exercises on one scale and then transferring it to the minor scale and then you know different sort of diminished scales and all that business you yeah, when it comes all... to playing music, you kind of have to sometimes leave the shed behind and just yeah. feel it, I suppose. Well, you know, I feel like that's an important part of my practice. Like when I practice, 
uh, I usually warm up with a particular idea. And then the bulk of my practice is, is focused on, you know, learning whatever I have to learn, whether it's like a new idea that I want to implement into my playing or, you know, learning music for a gig or whatever. But there's always an important part of my practice where after all of that is done, I just try to make music on my own without an agenda and just try to work on a few things. I'm working on my ability to react to a sound. So I'll play something and then react to that and then try to see if I can play what I'm hearing in response to what's being sort of put out. So I'm working on musical instinct and, uh, and really just trying to get a better sense, like a better uh, relationship with the instrument so that I know exactly where things are going to be and you know it helps when i get out on the bandstand because then i have this this sort of sharper musical instinct that allows me to react to other musicians when they play something um so that's you know that's a real important thing for me like at the end of my practice session i'm always just trying to create something from mm -hmm. a from a real sort of honest place where there's nothing else that i'm thinking about i'm not thinking about playing this scale or playing you know, some hip thing. I just want to be able to react. And what does your uh, practice uh, regime look like at the moment? Are you, you're not getting in the 12 hours you got in as a teenager, I'd say. No, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I try to put in a couple of hours a day and even that's a bit of a challenge. Um, but that's, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Like lately I found this video that talked about Barry Harris's chromatic scale, uh, which would take way too long to get into right now. But uh, I can, I'll, I'll stick it up and people can, they can Google yeah, it themselves. It's the heaviest thing I've ever seen, I think, because chromaticism is something that I've been trying to work into my playing for so long. And mm. it's been a real struggle for me. Uh, and this scale really breaks things down in such a cool way like even the name kind of almost makes no sense because if someone said a chromatic scale i just imagine you just go one note at a time yeah <laughs> <laughs> one yeah, fret at a time and then you have chromatic scale it's so cool the way that this scale is set up it's absolutely amazing so that's kind of what i've been shedding like so i'll do the thing where i you know i really want to get my fingers and also my brain into like a good mindset where i can feel like i can uh, connect to the instrument and create um, and be productive. And once I've reached that place, then I'll go into, in this case, I'll go into like learning more about this, this chromatic scale. Uh, I mean, all in all, it's about two hours. And are you still absorbing vocabulary? Or are you kind of at that stage where you just want to have your own voice and find your own vocabulary? Uh, I feel like at this stage of the game i feel comfortable enough to say that i do have my own voice i think um but i'm always trying to learn more i'm always trying to add to that vocabulary um i mean that's what this this sort of barry harris chromatic thing is all about like i really want to you know this sort of gives me a better understanding of the bebop language and chromaticism in general so i'm always trying to add to the vocabulary and i'm always trying to get away from uh you know standard sort of licks mm. and you know melodic devices that 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 my fingers just sort of automatically play sometimes i'll listen to a, a playback of a solo that i've done 
and I can hear all the the licks that I play all the time, and it kind of makes me sort of groan a little bit. So <laughs> yeah, everyone has those licks, like, <laughs> and even when you play with other players you've been with for years, you can hear their licks that they repeat yeah, all the time. Totally. Uh, so, uh, so I'm sort of in the process of trying to eliminate all of that, so that every time that I play and every time that I solo, I can think more in terms of composition and less in terms of like oh i have to play better than everybody else in the band mm. for the next 64 bars or whatever like no i don't want i don't want to be able to, i don't want to have to think about that i just want to be able to to interpret in an honest way and play something that moves people you know mm. yeah it's fun it's kind of hard to define what a bass solo is like i, I like i really like that willie weeks bass solo do you know that one which or, one's that it's on, uh, is it Donny Hathaway or some? It's on a live album and it's like a 13 minute song and he's just grooving on the roof, but then he does a lick and he's kind of having oh, a conversation yeah. with himself. And um, yeah. Sean Hurley does a few solos in that vibe, but then you have the other solo bass thing. So it's hard to define what everyone knows what a guitar solo sounds like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I just want to sort of get away from the idea of bass solos and really focus on being more compositional within that space of time mm. that way my you know that way my solos are always going to be different and more in the moment it's a bit of a lofty goal and <laughs> uh, just just working in the shed you'll get there <laughs> yeah yeah i you know that's how i feel about it too so, so did you find you grew a lot as a musician in 2020 overall obviously everyone had challenges and it was depressing when all our gigs were gone and there was ups yeah. and downs but overall i think you got a lot out of the, the, the all this downtime yeah it's been it's been a bit of a well not a bit it's been a, a major blessing for me because all these opportunities have come my way that wouldn't wouldn't have otherwise um so i'm very very i'm very grateful for that and i also feel like you know as musicians, uh, this has forced us to wear some different hats. You know, yeah. we have we have to up our our social media game, and we also have to learn how to produce and record our own music. And you know, a lot of people are resorting to teaching, so we're trying to be better teachers and understand how to do that in an online setting. And, so I think, you know, the last couple of years has sort of forced us to uh, sharpen our skills in ways that we wouldn't have mm. otherwise. So, yeah, when you're forced to do something, you either, you know, you have to just stand up and do it, don't you? Yeah, that's that's sort of been the sort of the running theme throughout this interview. It's like <laughs> when you're yeah. forced to do something, you got to do it. I hope we're inspiring people or not, not the other way. They're all going to give up. They're like, <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> base well, cases all over the world closing <laughs> uh just one thing popped out in your bio uh, you, it says you're a voiceover artist could you tell us something about that side of your career yeah again that's something that's been uh you have uh, got a, a smooth voice in fairness like so why <laughs> thank you thank you very much um that's something that's happened like over the last few months where i uh i started doing ads for the you know the local jazz station here uh there's a certain ad campaign that they've been running and i've been doing all the voiceovers for these ads uh 
which has been great. And it's starting to lead to other opportunities. So. And do you put on the radio guy voice or do you just oh, speak naturally? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of easy to do. at all. You're just yeah, no, it's, you, I mean, I don't speak that way normally. I would just, mm. that would be kind of embarrassing. But uh, yeah, I just sort of crank my level in my headphones. It allows me to speak a little quieter and then have much more of a, a soothing kind of a voice. A velvety tone. Yeah, man. Get my Barry White on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's fun though isn't it and you, who knows what else could come you could i don't know video video game voiceovers or something yeah. like that I, you know i, yeah. I want to get the job being the guy with the irish accent in a video game at some stage <laughs> <laughs> so do i <laughs> it's a hard one to do uh man to copy they always get it wrong Dude, in hollywood yeah. the irish accent i'm not even gonna try it's like the jamaican accent in hollywood it's terrible it's always terrible yeah, they get it so so bad. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> you don't have a very strong um, Canadian accent, though, because often uh, Canadian people get mistaken for being American when you meet them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their accent is really, ex- but yours is quite in the middle. You know, it's pretty neutral. Uh, I yeah, my when when I was nine, my family moved to Florida, and we lived in America for a little while. Um, that was a very horrible experience, but. Uh, a lot of my formative years were sort of spent in Florida. You just found and, it hard to being ch- moved to Florida from Canada. It was just too much. Well, yeah, it was. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> or it's something you don't want to get into. That's okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I could get into it, but it's, you know, it's really going to lead us down a, a, a road. I mean, you know, it was hard because there was, you know, overt, overt racism. I mean, really? Yeah, I mean, our house was egged and, Jesus, uh, you know, one night our house was smoke bombed. Like, so. How, how many years ago was this? Like, wasn't this the, would have the been like hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this would have been like uh, early to mid 80s. That's crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. But uh yeah, what were we talking about? Accents. But luckily, Canada is a racism, re- relatively racism-free. Yeah, I mean, we still have our problems, but it's nothing like what's going on there. I mm. feel like what you're seeing there now is just, you know, a lifting of the cover. That has always been there. Yeah, and that's, it's been simmering, but now it's boiling over. Yeah, it's always been there. And it's always been swept under the rug. And now people have cameras and you know you can't sweep it under the rug anymore you can't did you see uh, oh no i'm not going to get into this yeah maybe we should (laughs) rabbit hole but it's not really the this podcast doesn't get into that kind of stuff no 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 (laughs) but um no i really appreciate you coming on rich it was I've, i've been watching your stuff for years like i said i'm a lifetime member of svl but i've actually been just watching your youtube channel now the last few weeks and it just I hope you keep putting up those long form videos because I, I, I enjoy I them. I plan to. I that means a lot, man. Thank you very much, and Did thanks you? for having me on. This is really fun. No bother. Uh, sure, anytime you're in Ireland, hit me up. Come to Ireland, do a solo gig when you get to come back and do those train trips in Europe. You know. You, yeah, you know what's funny? I have like over the next couple of weeks, uh, I have two more things, two more online things based in Ireland. Really? Uh, yeah, I'm doing uh, I'm doing a master class for the Cork School of Music. Uh, Cork. Okay, yeah, I know my my girlfriend is goes there. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, and then uh, I have an interview with, oh, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, you had her before on the, on your Oh, um, Ellen. Ellen, yes. Um, Ellen, yeah, for um, Talking Bass, is it? Yeah, I've got okay. an interview with coming up with her in, uh, in a couple of weeks. Cool. So it's, it's funny, I feel That's like I'm funny, traveling yeah. to Ireland. Uh, and there's also <laughs> another thing here called the Sligo Jazz Project, and it's oh. run by a bass player, so... Your phone will probably be ringing at some stage. Yes. <laughs> He'll want you to Bring do something. Bring it on. He gets so max. I must get him on. He had he has an artist in residence every year. So he had he had Victor. He had um, wow, Joe cool. Dart. He had yeah. that Italian guy. Um, not Davey 504. The other, the guy who wears oh, the yeah, waistcoat. Yeah. Who's yeah, yeah, Federico. Yeah. Is that his name? Something. Federico Malaman, yeah. Yeah, so. You He's know, great. You, you'll get, come over here. Well, you do, you do the London Bay show sometimes, don't you? Which is only yeah. a stone throw away, really. Like, yeah, yeah. I played the Cork Jazz Festival a few years ago. That was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I play that every year. It's like great. You can do as many gigs as you want. You could get ten gigs around the city if you, if you want. Like, it's so great. We played in this beautiful church. Our gig was in a church. It was great. Really? Yeah. Was that with, what band was that with? That was with a saxophone player from New York. Uh, his name is Rudresh Mahantapa. Uh, yeah, that was a fun show. It was a fun night. We had a lot of fun. I actually only found out at the last Jazz Fest 2019, uh, it wasn't on last year, that there was a, re- a residence bar for all the bands. And I had the lanyard, but I never knew what it did. But it turns out this bar stays open about seven in the morning. So I'm delighted I never found out about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not a bar that's in like, that's like a separate bar. It's not in the hotel or anything. It's hotel. in the hotel, yeah, in the in the yeah. Metropole, I think. There is a bar. Okay. The, the bar stays open pretty late. Like, there's a, a club, festival club or something. Yeah, that's where we were. <laughs> I remember, like, we went to that bar uh, after our gig and hung out until the wee hours. And there was a killing band playing, like, at the bar. They sounded so good. Yeah, it is a really good festival. So hopefully it'll come back. There's yeah, some yeah. controversy about it not having enough jazz and stuff like that, but hopefully it'll come back and there'll be a good lineup of decent jazz acts. But it's the kind of non-jazz acts that feed the the people who are drinking. You know, there's a lot of yeah. blues and stuff. Well, I was playing blues gigs myself. Like, I feel like there's so many festivals all over the world sort of going through that same issue. Well, I, I think they can work um, hand in glove. You know, if I think so, if too. if it means you can get like Marcus Miller who played Jazz Fest two years ago, I think, and at the festival like who cares like if the pubs are doing some bluesy gigs but if the the paid gigs have these amazing jazz acts i suppose everyone can win like and they've yeah, workshops and these things yeah man yeah i totally agree and you know uh, to me there's only two kinds of music it's either good or bad right like yeah <laughs> I, I remember i remember playing the montreux jazz festival a few years ago like 2004 and you know of course there were all these jazz artists but they had, in this huge, gorgeous theater, they had a metal night. And every night, there'd be another metal band. There'd be like Judas Priest playing like the Montreux Jazz Festival. That's I thought crazy. it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what's the London bass show like? I, I really want to go, but I can't find a date because I have to, you know, make sure I'm not gigging. Every year it's on, I was always gigging. I really, is it, is it, is it yeah. really cool? It looks like great fun. It's amazing. Uh, I was there for, I guess I was there for the whole festival, like the the weekend that it, that it was on three, four days. Um, and Scott brought us out to do, yeah, he basically had one room where he would have these sort of masterclasses. Mm. 
uh, a few times, a couple of times a day. So we would rotate. It was like me and Gary Willis and um, Bob, Henry, Bobby Vega was one Bobby of the Vega, guys. Yeah. yeah, and Heinrich Lind, Lindler, Linder, yeah, from the Dirty Swedish Loops, guy, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so we would just rotate, and everyone would go to everyone else's like master. They're classes. on SBL somewhere in the site. Yeah, all those videos are there. They're not yeah. really people don't know they're there probably, but you, if you're a member, you can find them. Like, yeah, yeah, it was a great time. I mean, Scott's like. He's the best. He's oh, yeah, just he, the best guy. You know he's a nice. You can. It comes across his personality. He's a real chill, nice guy. And Leeds is a totally lovely is. city. The city he's from. So yeah, yeah. For a visit, it's one, probably I, my favorite city in England. Oh, that's cool. I've been there twice. There used to be this place called the Wardrobe. Scott says it's not there anymore, but man, that was a great room. Uh, yes. Well, I, I'll hopefully I might catch at. Would you fly over again for the London Bay show, or is it? Is it a I'd big be ask more than considering you're, you know, living in Toronto. Yeah, I mean, I'd be more than willing to do it, but uh, it's up to it's really up to the big boss, Scott. Well, <laughs> I'm sure the call will come, you know, and well, you've a lot going on, which is awesome. So, where will people check you out? Are, do you do much on Instagram, or is it mainly YouTube where you you hang out? Yeah, well, uh, I'm on all of those platforms. I'm on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, my music is available on my Bandcamp page. I don't have an official website, um, but Bandcamp is the place where you can really, I have three albums uh, that you can buy on the on the Bandcamp page. Um, and then there's the YouTube thing that, uh, that I'm trying to... You know, uh, any thoughts build. of maybe doing a Patreon or are you happy kind of the way things are going at the moment? Yeah, I, I have. I've been thinking a lot about doing a Patreon page. I'm just wondering about the perks that's the hardest part for me yeah you don't you well there's two elements to it one you, you want to give people value for money but two you don't want to put too much work on yourself as in like that's Shit, the thing i need to make something this week for my patrons and yeah i don't have that ready yeah i mean if my plate wasn't so full already it i'd be willing to put that time in but uh you could so be more relaxed about it you could kind of have like a base hang with all your patrons every week, every week or so. Yeah. Live. And you know, it's almost like a private lesson, but they're all there on it. Like that's not a bad idea actually. So you have to kind of, the way I'm seeing it is everything we're doing now, we have to imagine it's 12 months down the line and things are back to normality. And can you dedicate all week to doing YouTube videos and stuff when gigs yeah, come back? No, yeah. <laughs> No, <laughs> <laughs> I can't. No one can. No, so no one can. You have to yeah. be sustainable, is what I'm saying. Like before we can't, we I pressed record. I was telling you, for the first few podcasts, I spent ten hours editing each episode. But now I'm, I'm thinking that's not sustainable. I, yeah, I'm busy. I'm teaching all week and gigging and everything. You have to start thinking of how th- when things get back to normal. I think. Of course, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to like figure out different ways to you know, keep as much stuff happening as possible, but also keeping that in mind. I mean, we're going to, we're going to all be going back to work eventually. So it's been nice while we had the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it'll also be very nice to get back to a gig. <laughs> Absolutely. It's good that we've been able to sort of, we as musicians and creatives, we have been able to, uh, you know, find the silver lining in this very dark cloud, you know? Yeah. It's, well, it, it speaks to our, uh, our resourcefulness i guess 
Yeah, well, we're, musicians are nothing but resourceful, that's for sure. We can make <laughs> a living as musicians. <laughs> we'll survive yeah. anywhere. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Cheers. Well, thanks for coming on, and sure, I'm sure we'll chat again. I would love that. My pleasure, man. <laughs>